Guys, going to dig into uh, this topic that we're going through right now, the end, and it's basically about the day of the Lord and the events leading up to the day of the Lord. I realize there is a lot of stuff, best-selling books and movies out there on this topic. Um, I'm going to take a slant that's probably going to be a little bit different than those Hollywood TV movies, uh, Hollywood movies, but as we, we're going to go through some in Revelation, Daniel, um, Matthew 24, and Luke's 21 next week, and a variety of things, but uh, there's a lot of questions I realize that people have that I'm hoping to be able to answer as many as I can, but realize that this is not a like a seminary class. This is church. This is where we go and we be with God. We learn his word, but my chief goal is not that you walk out with some matrix download of information, but that your lives are transformed by the word of God. That's our goal. So I know we're, we're kind of touching on a, a cool topic for some of you, but our goal is Jesus. Our goal is, as Revelation says, it is to see Jesus revealed in all of his glory on the pages of scripture and that that glory transforms us. When, when Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai, getting the Ten Commandments from the hand or the finger of God, he came down and his face glowed. Church, spiritually, I believe that is what God desires for every single one of us when we're in his presence. And here, gathered together, Jesus is here in our midst where two or more are gathered. He's tabernacled on the praises of his people, Psalm 22, 4 says. So we we're hearing God's presence. We're seeking to learn from his word. But even beyond that, we are seeking to be transformed so we live God's word. Amen? So let me pray to that end for us right now. God, I just ask that as we look into your word, use your word to open our hearts. Speak to us, spirit of God. Transform us. Challenge us. Encourage us. Whatever we are in need of tonight. But I just pray right now, you be our teacher, you be our counselor, you be our comforter. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stupid question, I'm going to ask it anyway. How many of you have ever seen an apocalyptic movie before? Raise your hand. What was the premise of the end of the world? Was it a comet, you know, heading towards Earth, ready to hit it? And then everybody knows that once it hits Earth, we're just obliterated. But we're going to send up astronauts into space to try and somehow divert this, okay? Or it's just like this, the whole world freezes. Yep, we've been down that road before. I actually enjoyed that movie. Um, or how about the core of the earth stops turning? And because of this, there's like super heavy-duty climate change and, you know, hail, hail about the size of, I don't know, how big is this? And, and, and people are getting hit in the head and guess what? They're dying left and right. And, and tsunamis and um, asteroids hitting the earth. Uh, the, the sun getting so hot that we just burn to a crisp, you know. Or something about um, Thanos, you know. It, whatever it is, you know, just don't get too close when he snaps his fingers, right? But the truth is that the movies, all, all kinds of movies out there about the end of the world, and now there's this post-apocalyptic. Like, apocalypse means that the earth is ending, so after the earth ends, 
I guess people manage to survive, and it's, it's what that's supposed to look like, all right? And, and, but I've got news for you. When the world ends, that post-apocalyptic world will not exist because we will be in a new heaven and a new earth, and everything will change. Everything. But all of this happens in Christian movies at the end of what's commonly called the seven-year tribulation. How many of you have ever heard of that phrase before? The seven-year tribulation. Okay, most of us have heard it. We're going to talk about that tonight and next week. What is this seven years? And does it even last seven years? And where do we get seven years? Because when we read about it tonight, it says nothing about seven. It just calls it the great tribulation. Now we get the word, we get seven actually from one passage in the Bible. And that's all the way back in Daniel. And is that a legitimate, then, or, or is it legitimate to bring it into this passage? We're going to look at Revelation chapter seven tonight. We got a lot of questions about this seven-year tribulation. Apparently, the Antichrist conquers the world. Everyone gets a mark to to even live, buy, and sell. Mark of the beast, it's called. You know, 666 or some code or even a chip, perhaps, in your wrist or in your forehead. He does something that's called an abomination of desolation. He kills all the Christians. And then fights Jesus when he returns, loses, and then is cast into hell. Now, I'm not disparaging all of that, but we do need to question it and just say, okay, this is what the movies are telling us. This is what the books are telling us. At some point, it's the Bible, not movies. It's scripture and not scripts. So how much of this is true? We're going to go through a lot of this in this series called The End, question mark, because if I've mentioned to you, the end really is not the end, guys. It is only the beginning of a new creation. It is the beginning of forever, of heaven. And for all of you who believe in Jesus, that's going to include you. And can you imagine, I mean, when we get to the topic of heaven, I just, you know, may God just give us a fresh revelation of what the scripture truly teaches about heaven. Well, last week, we, tr- we started off by looking at the point of revelation, and we asked this question, is the point of revelation apocalyptic? In other words, is it a roadmap to the end times? Starting with chapter 6 and all seven seals, and then you got the seven trumpets, and then you've got the seven woes. So, excuse me, the, 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 the seven, the, um, well, the, the seven bowls of wrath. So what are these? Are they all, do they all happen at the end of the age? See, most people in those books that you've read that are like, wow, awesome, and you're glued to them. Guys, I, I read some of these books back in the 70s, and I played hooky from school just to read them. I did. I played sick. I wasn't saved yet. I'm not saying like Christians never do that. But, you know, so word of the wise, moms and dads, if your child ever stays home from school, just make sure what book is tucked under their pillow. Okay, just, just so you, you check. But Is Revelation just about the apocalypse? Or is it really, as Scripture tells us in the very beginning, a revelation 
of Jesus Christ. So that these judgments, number one, they do not all happen at the end of the age. And scripture, Revelation, doesn't say that they do. We assume this because so much of it just seems sensational. It's like, well, that's got to be the end of the world. We're going to talk about that a little bit. I tell you what, with some of these that happen, and I do believe they happen at the end of the age, some of them do, and if we take them literally, the world would end. There would not be a fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh bowl of wrath. The world would be obliterated. So we, we just have to step back and say, what is symbol? What is literal? Because nobody believes that the beast is literal. They all believe that he's going to be something, one, you know, a lot of different interpretations, but nobody believes that it's a literal beast. So there is symbolism here, and we're going to need to unwrap some of those symbols. But this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. When the seven seals are broken, then the scroll is opened. How ironic or, or how strange it would be to open all of the seals, which are judgments upon the earth, and never open the scroll. And so I question that because many theologians say it's never opened. And I, I say, no, I believe it is. But we're not told that it's opened. We are shown that it's open. The temple is open. The temple in the Old Testament is a clear symbol of Jesus. When we look into the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. And yet somehow, when we look into this temple, we're able to see the Ark of the Covenant, and we should not. Why, church? We should see the veil of the temple. But scripture says that at the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two, meaning by the blood of Jesus Christ and our sins forgiven, we now have the privilege of being in the very presence of God. And get a load of this, church. The Bible says that the Spirit of God, the very presence of God, lives in you. That is amazing that the, the God that is out there now lives inside of every believer in Jesus. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit, having believed. And so we, we get this revelation of Jesus, but the judgments must come in order to bring the nations to repentance in view of this open scroll, which is Jesus, and all of the work that he has done to accomplish my redemption, that is the scroll that is now opened, and it is the gospel that it's proclaimed, who Jesus is, what he did to accomplish my redemption. This is the story throughout Revelation. We're going to even see that in this chapter. Well, not, well, in this chapter, but yes, we're going to have to go to another chapter, chapter 14, to see even more of it. But what I want to do right now is I want us Grab your diagram here. We just, last week, we read about the opening of the six seals. That, that wasn't our focus, but to let you know that when the sixth seal is opened, what happens? The world is destroyed. Don't get, don't get me wrong here. When, when the world's destroyed, I need to ask a question. How then can you even open a seventh seal? If the world's destroyed, what more can you destroy? And what we realize is that the end of the opening of the sixth seal, there's a rewind. So that the seventh seal, which is seven trumpets of judgments, happen before the sixth seal is opened. 
there's a rewind. That happens at the end of chapter 6 then. So I'm going to read to you chapter 7. And if there's a rewind between, oh, after the seventh, sixth seal is opened, that tells me that this chapter right here is a rewind. And we need to ask the question, when does it happen? Who are the 144,000? What is this great tribulation and those that come out of the great tribulation? And then we're going to get into some application. But I want you to hang on to this. I'm not going to talk, tell you and kind of list out the different rewinds that I see in Revelation. But there are at least six, and I personally count seven, rewinds in Revelation. And so it is not laid out for us from chapter 6 to the end in chronological order. It just is not. So I'm, I'm saying that because I want to challenge us to see Revelation differently. That as I'm about to read to you chapter, six, chapter 7, we do not want to assume that it happens at the end of, the, end of time, at the end of the world. We're not told that. So let me go ahead, jump into it, and I'll read to you the entire chapter. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, which is in the next chapter. So this is an introduction to the seventh seal, which is seven trumpets of judgment. And if we're not going to read chapter 8, we'll do that at a later time. But those judgments is what he's talking about here. Okay? So this is kind of like a prequel, if you will. Caught out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000, from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, from the tribe of Gad, 12,000, from the tribe of Asher, 12,000, from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000, from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000, from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000, from the tribe of Levi, 12,000, from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000, from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000, from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could number, excuse me, that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were holding, excuse me, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen! 
praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. White in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not scorch, excuse me, the sun will not beat upon them nor, the, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne, remember the lamb is standing in the center of the throne, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. How ironic is that? The lamb standing in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We need to ask, are these 144,000, are they end-time Jewish believers? Like super evangelists? Because if you pick up a book, if you see it in the movies, that's generally how they're portrayed. They're the 144,000 Jews at the end during the seven-year tribulation, and they're like super evangelists on steroids. They're like, wow. And they say that because they apparently, because they come first in this vision, they're the ones who win these people who are from every nation, tribe, language, tongue. Um, they're the multitude that you can't count. And I want to challenge that. Is, that. is that really what the text is telling me? Does it even say that they're evangelists? I'm going to suggest that it does, but just not here. We're going to see something a whole lot more than that. How about the great multitude? Most people view them as the martyrs that cannot be counted during the great tribulation, this seven-year tribulation. Is that true? We need to dig into this. Who are these? First of all, we need to, again, let me just restate, this is a rewind and we don't want to just assume it happens at the end of the age. We see these judgments upon the land, upon the grass, upon the sea. And I, I want us to be careful, like, to what degree do we take those judgments in chapter 8? We're not there yet. How literal are they? So let me just say that nowhere in chapter 8 will we discover when these judgments take place. We don't want to assume that they're apocalyptic. And the text doesn't say that they are. We assume it because when we read it, it's like, that must be the end of the age. But I want us to question that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to suggest that it is not the end of the age. It is not end time judgments. I mean, some of these judgments, of course, will happen in the end of the age. They sound like the total destruction of the earth. But are they taken literally? They would snuff out life on earth immediately, not over seven years. So let's look at, we're going to look at those another time. I want you to notice something. 
in verse 3, it tells us that the angel comes to put a seal of God on their foreheads. So before I go any further, I'm now going to have us turn to Revelation 14. Because Revelation 14 is the other place in which these 144,000 are mentioned. Okay? So turn with me. I'm just going to read the first five verses. Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb. He's not standing on the throne anymore. Standing on Mount Zion... And with them, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written, where church? On their foreheads, which is exactly where the angel is going to put the seal of God. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder, which if you use this description and follow it throughout revolution, revelation, <laughs> For some of us, I guess it's a revolution. But the truth is, it, 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 it's linked up with singing or shouting or the people of God praising, worshiping, rejoicing before God. Okay, so is that true? Uh, it says, the sound I heard was the, like that of harpists playing their harps. And, verse 3, and, I, and they sang a new song before the throne. So where are these 144,000? It says they're on Mount Zion, but it says here now they're before the throne. May I suggest to you that this Mount Zion is not Mount Zion where Jerusalem physically is right now. On, it's not a geographical location on earth. It is a metaphor, and we see it in the Old Testament, Mount Zion, or Zion, in the Old Testament. We, 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 we see that it is a metaphor for the people of God. It could be the people of God on earth, it could be the people of God in heaven. Apparently here it's the people of God in heaven. And in the New Testament, it only refers to the people of God in heaven. It's, it's, it's mentioned a couple of times, not just here, and it always refers to the people of God in heaven. So they are standing in heaven before the throne. And listen to this. So they're singing this new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. I, I, I guess what, what the music was like too difficult. The words was it a different language, do you think? But nobody could learn the song. Well, why would that be? We're going to have to look into that and ask why. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from men as firstfruits, to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. It's interesting that the seal of God, the, a seal would, would represent ownership on someone or something. So it's like when the, when the uh, pilot, the governor, wanted to seal the tomb. That was his stamp of like, this is my authority. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, representing we are now owned by God. I used to be owned by Satan and by sin. I am now in Christ. I am now owned by God. I was a slave to sin, but now I'm a slave to righteousness and to God. I am his servant. Scripture talks about this ear-pierced slave. That's us now. 
We are his servants forever. That's the idea of ear piercing. And Ezekiel 9, and I want us to look at that. Ezekiel 9, if you don't want to turn all the way back there, you can just follow me as I read. But Ezekiel 9, 4, uh, 4 through 6 says this. The Lord speaks, is speaking to an angel and it says, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is during the... Um, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And this is just prior to this. This is a sentence of destruction because Jerusalem, starting with its elders, refused to repent and turn to God wholeheartedly. Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. Sin grieved these people's hearts. Would it, church, what a scary thing when we can listen to the news and hear all the sin that is talked about and not be moved. May our hearts never be callous to that point. But above all of this, when we see sin in our own hearts, not our neighbors, well, okay, yes, in our neighbors, but first with us, when we see sin in our own lives, that our hearts grieve, that it is something that we do not want to be part of. Okay, sin should grieve us, church. It grieves the Spirit of God. As I listened, he said to the others, follow him throughout the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men, and maidens, women, and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at the sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. No one will be spared God's judgment who does not have this seal, this mark, this name of God. See, when, when God's name is placed upon someone, and this is mentioned earlier in one of the letters, that meant God owned them, that they were servants of God, that they trusted in Jesus. They've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They were followers of Jesus. So God had placed his name on them. I want you to look at your neighbor and see if you can, and look to see if you can see the name of God on their forehead. Does, that, does anybody see it? I don't, is it Jesus? Is it Yahweh? And, and do you see the name of God on anyone's forehead? So here is my question. Do you realize what passage of Scripture immediately precedes this? It is about the mark of the beast. Here we're told about the mark of God, and you just told me you couldn't see it. Now, it wasn't a chip embedded your, in your forehead. Just, just check, just to make sure there's no little tiny lump in your neighbor's forehead, okay? Now, I'm not seeing one, so okay. Uh, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious here, but if, this, if the mark of God on your forehead, the seal of God, the name of God is on your forehead and you cannot see it, why do you think we should see the mark of the beast? It is not a 666 on your wrist or your, the back of your hand or on your forehead. It is the name of the beast. Why? 
Because even as the name of God were placed, was placed on the 144,000 because their lives were surrendered to God and to the Lamb, and they followed the Lamb wherever he went, those with the mark of the beast are merely those who have rejected God. Their master is the world system. It's Satan. It's anything contrary to true faith in Jesus Christ. Anything. Their allegiance is not God. It is not Jesus. It is the world. We're going to have to talk about the beast and what that is and who that is. And and we're going to need to unwrap that a little bit. So I I realize I'm kind of jumping ahead on this. But I'm just kind of giving you a prelude. Maybe the mark of the beast is not something that you're going to see. Maybe it's not some chip in the in the hand or in the forehead. Maybe it's not something that you're going to scan, but it has everything to do with your heart. Because that's what the seal, that's what the mark of God is. The name of God. There's the mark or the name of the beast that's on the unbeliever. There is the seal or mark or name of God on the believer. And I believe John purpose or God in his providential Uh, revealing this to John, purposely puts the end of chapter 13 right next to the beginning of chapter 14. The mark of the beast, the mark of God. Well, let's continue on. The 144,000. If we go back to Revelation chapter 7, we would see that there's 144,000. It says that they're from the tribes of Israel. I realize that it is popular in some brands of Christianity to say that Israel in the New Testament is simply the church. And and, and I understand their reasoning when you look at some Old Testament passages. This is so very true. We see the church in these promises given to Israel. But when we come to the New Testament, and and I'm going to just share this with you, church, there's not one time, I believe, where the word Israel is mentioned... And we're supposed to, it's code for the church. I'm going to suggest that these truly are Israelites. These are Jews. From the 12 tribes, excuse me, that 140, I'm jumping ahead of myself. They're from Israel. They're Jews. I want you to look at the names of the tribes. You do not find this list anywhere in the Old Testament or anywhere else in the New Testament. You don't find it. This is not a list of Israel or Jacob's 12 sons. As a matter of fact, what we find here is that Dan is not mentioned, and he was one of Israel or Jacob's sons. Instead, you have have Manasseh. Manasseh was the grandson of Jacob. Remember, Levi was removed from the inheritance, the, the land that was to be distributed because he The Levites were to be spread throughout all 12 tribes. So this is not a list of the 12 tribes inheriting the land either. Joseph, being led by God, had Jacob, or Israel, adopt his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. So Manasseh and Ephraim, instead of Joseph and Levi, inherit Land in the promised land. So it's not that list either because Ephraim is not mentioned. This is just the strangest list. And I, I, I 
find it a bit humorous when theologians want to argue about why and so on and so forth. And hey, guess what, guys? This is purposely written to say it's nothing like that before. It's just, it's just not. It has nothing to do with the with the the sons. It has nothing of Israel. It has nothing to do with the tribal inheritances. They are just Jews, and it's twelve times twelve times a thousand, which twelve is the number for the people of God. Twelve and twelve, and then thousand. Can I just encourage you? I do not believe that this is a literal number, and you're going to find out why in just a moment. But I do not believe this is a literal 144,000 or 12, 12 times 12,000. The number 1,000, by the way, is regularly used to, to mean many. How many angels are there? There's thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Hang on a second. Let me get my pocket calculator out here. 10,000 times 10. How many knows what 10,000 times 10,000 is? It's 100 million. Are there 100 million plus a few thousand angels? Is that what God's trying to say? He's just trying to say, you can't count them. There's innumerable. It's thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. He is not trying to give us a literal number. And we find this many places with numbers in the book of Revelation, not just here. So what, who, then, are these people? They're countable, contrasted with the group that we are introduced next that aren't countable. Let's go back now to chapter 14. We didn't talk about everything there. The first thing that I want us to see, not only are they in heaven, but here's a really cool thing. They sing a song that only they know. And no one else can learn their song. Now, literally, church, that's impossible. People can learn songs. You'll, you may, if it's of a different language, you can learn the language and then you'll learn the song. But why is this a song that no one else can know? No one else knows this song. They can't even learn it. Why? It is a very specific song. And if you were to look at the very next chapter, chapter 15, look at verse 3 here. It's talking about a group that did not receive the mark of the beast. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Moses, deliverer of Israel. Lamb, the deliverer of mankind. This song that they sing is a song of deliverance. It is a testimony. Church, it is, it is their testimony of deliverance. When the 144,000 know a song and no one, ever, no one else knows it, it is for this reason. It is their personal testimony that cannot ever be repeated in history. It is something that they went through that was so unique. Can I just ask you? Well, first, first, I, I need to... Yeah, I, I need to ask this question. What is this a testimony of? What is this song that testifies to, to being redeemed by Jesus, by the Lamb, that's so unique? He, one word says it all. Oh, oh, do you want to know what that word is? Okay, let me give it to you. It's actually found in verse 5. I think it's, no, no, it's actually found in verse 4. I'm sorry, I've got so many underlinings and marks. I, the numbers are kind of rubbed out here. They follow the lamb 
wherever he goes. They were. So this is their past. This is about their testimony. They were purchased from among men from the earth and as first fruits. First fruits to God and the Lamb. Do you know what a first fruit is? The, the first believers to believe in Jesus in Achaia, Paul calls them the first fruits of Achaia. When Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls him the first fruit from first fruits from among the dead. He was the first one. Who were the first redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? I'm not saying that they're offerings like they're not sacrifices. I don't believe that these were martyrs. That's not what first fruits communicates. But they were the first believers in Jesus. Let's go back to the very early church. When did Jews, excuse me, when did Gentiles even begin to get saved? It was about 10 to 12 years after Jesus' resurrection. The early church for the first decade plus was only Jews. They were followers of Jesus. Not only were they followers of Jesus, but the vast majority, maybe all of them, had seen Jesus. They had listened to him preach. They had some point been in contact. Jesus came to Jerusalem. The first believers were from Jerusalem. The gospel then began to spread. So many of them had witnessed about Jesus, heard about his resurrection of uh, Lazarus, had seen him do a miracle, had at least heard him preach in the temple. How unique is that? No one else can testify about that. Except these Jews in the early church, the first decade, who believed in Jesus, who had even heard and perhaps even witnessed how people's lives were changed immediately after Jesus was reported to be raised from the dead. How unique is this? Their testimony, I can't share in that unique testimony. Nobody can but them. They witnessed Jesus with their own eyes. Man, I wish that I could have, I wish I could have seen him touched the damsel of 12 years of age and she came back to life. I wish I could have seen him take mud and put it on the blind man's eyes so that he could see. And when he washed a miracle, I would love to have seen him walk up or, or rather I guess the, 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 uh, uh, the who am I thinking, the, the lepers. He walked up to the lepers because they wouldn't have walked up to him and he, he touched them and they healed them. Remember one of them came back and said, thank you. I would have loved to have seen these. I would love to have seen him touch that coffin that was being raised up and carried outside of the city of, or the town of Nain and his widowed mother following this beer, this B-I-E-R, by the way, this coffin. And Jesus simply touches it and the man sits up. That would freak everybody out. He was healed. He was raised from the dead. What? The compassion of Jesus meeting just as she was a widow and now her only son. How is she going to live? And Jesus answered the cry, the desperate cry of her heart and raised her son. Sorry, buddy, you need to get down there and start working for your mom and provide for, you know. <laughs> and so how cool would that be? That, they were the first fruits. They were the first to believe in Jesus. So when we go back to chapter 7, when do you think this happened? See, they're the first fruits, not the last fruits. 
They don't live at the end of the age. They live at the very beginning. First fruits. First believers in Jesus. Do a word study on this first fruits. It happens about half a dozen times. You'll see this, I believe. And so consequently, these first fruits are not living at the end of the age, but the beginning, these judgments are being poured out. This seventh seal happens, or at least starts, at the beginning of the church age, when these were alive. So can I suggest that when these seven trumpets are blown in chapter 8, they do not happen at the end of the age, but rather, except the very last one. So when we look at this, Let's not read into it. This, this must be happening in the seven-year tribulation. See, it doesn't. Because these are first fruits, not last fruits. No lie is found in their mouths. Please tell me it's not 25 after. Church, I've got so much more. No lie is found in their mouths. You know what? Um, you know what, church? I am just going to preach this. This is too important right here at the end. Uh, and we're just going to have to hold the Great Tribulation for next week. See what we can do with that. Um, but no lie. If we go back to chapter, we're just going to conclude this time together. Look at chapter 14. No lie was found in their mouths. I want you to think about that. What would that mean? John is really big on the use of this word lie, and he always puts the word truth juxtaposed to it. If he's saying that there's no lie found in their mouth, what he's really saying is only truth is found on their lips. What truth do you think that is? If you were to know John's writing, truth would be the gospel. Truth is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus that Revelation 1, 1 through 4 tells us the whole book is about. They're declaring that. Yes, they are evangelists, but they would be just like you and me. They, they had seen Jesus, yes. They, maybe, maybe it was Jairus and his daughter. Maybe he was one of those 144,000. We don't know if he believes, but I'm going to guess he did, and his wife. They would be included then in this 144,000. But they declared the truth. As a matter of fact, they declared it a little bit too soon because Jesus says, don't tell anybody I raised your daughter from the dead. And what did they do? They immediately went out and said, everybody, guess what? No, Jairus, I know you're excited. Oh my goodness, I would be too, but shh. Because Jesus' popularity began to explode and he could not go into cities or towns anymore. And so he, he needed to keep this on the down low, but they were too excited. They had to tell somebody, truth just spilled out of their lips. The gospel began to spread all over the place. Why? Because truth tumbled out of their mouths. Not lies. Only the truth. Church, that's what, that's what needs to happen to us. We need to be people who just love to walk around. And when an opportunity arises, oh my goodness, let me just tell you what Jesus did for me. Let me tell you the song that I know, my testimony. Let me point you to Jesus. Just like the woman at the well, come and see a man who told me everything about my life. Remember that one? Wow. Truth, truth, truth. Church, speak the truth. 
I'm not saying, like, don't, don't fib. I don't think that's what he's really getting at. I think he's talking about the truth of the gospel. Let, let there be something that just erupts in your heart when there's an opportunity. Oh, 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 you, you, I need to tell you about Jesus. You don't know about Jesus? I got to tell you how Jesus changed my life. Truth. Then it says that they were pure. Actually, it says they were blameless, pure, undefiled with women. Can I just say, why is that a big deal? Undefiled with women. Well, literally, that would mean they didn't have sex outside of marriage because sex in the context of marriage is good and beautiful to be enjoyed. But sex outside of marriage, Scripture says that's sin. Are you familiar with the phrase spiritual adultery? See, adultery, sexual immorality, outside of the confines of covenantal marriage is considered sin. And this concept of spiritual adultery means that you are now devoted to someone who's not your spouse. As a believer, that would mean instead of you serving Jesus, you're serving the world. James 4, when we went through James, he talked about this. You adulterous generation. Wow. He didn't pull back on his punches, and he called a spade a spade. James did in chapter 4. You are friends with the world. It doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be friends of sinners. Jesus was friends of sinners, church. He's just simply saying, you're buddying up to the world system. It tantalizes you. It's distracting you far too much. You love the world. And that's what James is trying to tell him. And there he uses this phrase, you're an adulterous people. These were not adulterous people. Their hearts were pure. They were singularly devoted to Jesus. They followed the lamb wherever he went. To follow the lamb wherever he went simply means that they did what Jesus did. Everywhere Jesus went, They followed. Why do you think they would follow him? Because they want to learn. They were disciples. They wanted to be like Jesus. This 144,000, they're setting us an example. If you're a mom or a dad, you've lived life before your children. I think that's the way that thing works. Consequently, you set an example for your children. You set an example for your grandchildren. You set an example for future generations. In your workplace, you set an example for those who are yet to become believers in Jesus. Why? Because you are the first. You're the ones who now, you're setting the pace here. That's what the 144,000 did. They were the first believers in Jesus, and they were radically devoted to him. They followed the lamb everywhere he went. Church, do we have this type of devotion following after Jesus and and I'll be honest with you church there's sometimes in which I just feel this coldness over my heart and that is when I have to press into Jesus God whatever's going on if I'm just distracted whatever it is pull me out of this funk I want to follow Jesus with a passion because and those who followed Jesus with a passion in the book of Revelation, many of them became martyrs. I'm not saying that the 144,000 were, but guess what, church? When you read your Bibles in the book of Acts, many of them went through that persecution and they died. And one of the main persecutors was the well known 
Saul, whose name was changed to Paul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. He was one of the main persecutors. Mm. They followed Jesus wherever he went. Church, I want to I just set out this challenge to you. The 144,000 set the pace. When you read through the book of Acts, are you not struck by their radical devotion? Are you not mesmerized but how, by how people like Paul and, and even those who were not apostles, they just had this passion for Jesus. When someone was in need, they didn't think about holding their money close to their chest. If there was a need and there was no other way to meet that need, they opened their pockets and they gave. There was just this radical devotion to Jesus. Read about it in chapter 2 and chapter 4 and 5. It's just this, they were so captivated by, I want to follow Jesus. I want to live like him. There were no needy persons among them because of this. Love and truth guided them. So church, as as we look at these 144,000, they're not some end-time, super evangelistic Jews. They're actually the first believers in Jesus, the first fruits. They followed Jesus and set the pace. They had the seal of God on their forehead because they were owned by God. They followed Jesus everywhere. They kept their distance from the things of the world. They had to step into the world to reach them, but they remained untainted by the world. Church, remain untainted. Don't let the world influence you. Don't let the world stain you. Step back and say, I will reach the lost, but I will not speak or think or live like them because I am owned by God and I follow only him. Amen, church? Can you stand with me? Wow, Lord, we did not get through all of what we wanted to get through. But Lord, I believe that as we went through your word, we encountered truth. And I pray, Father, that this isn't just facts that we're gleaning, but these are life-giving principles of how to follow Jesus. And I ask you, Lord, that this week, show us how we can do that. Show us how we can shine Jesus, how we can show off Jesus, how we can be his mouthpiece and tell people about Jesus. Ignite that in our hearts, Lord. And I just pray, Father, where we may be discouraged, any of us discouraged, I just pray, lift us up. You be our hope. You be our encouragement that our lives would be rooted and grounded on the truth of Jesus, the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus. And I just pray, fathers, as we live our lives this week, may we shine Jesus in every way we can, in Jesus' name.